amazing number of economists have extremely paternalistic ideas. They just want to tell people what to do. Asking the question why is central to research in labour economics. Instead of trying to tell people how to live their lives, labour economists are interested in understanding why people make economic choices that might not be in their own best interests. This is Nobel Prize Conversations, and you just heard David Card, the 2021 Economic Sciences Laureate, who was awarded the prize for his empirical contributions to labour economics. He shared the prize with Joshua Angrist and Hedo Imbens. David Card is Professor of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley. He started his academic path at a rural school in Canada with one big classroom where every row was a different year. And so that allowed me to skip a grade. I basically one year just moved over a row. (laughs) Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Fundación Ramón Arefes. Professor Card talks about growing up on a dairy farm, about the need for more diversity in PhD programmes, and his reluctance to become involved in policymaking. But first, he tells Adam about his decision not to attend the 2022 Nobel Banquet. Getting a tuxedo and neither my wife or I, I mean, that's, that's just something we would dread. <laughs> yeah, it was just, just so not something that I'm interested in. <laughs> Other people seem to like it, and that's fine. Um, but that, that is really not my idea of fun. They send us this book with this picture of a huge dinner, and there's all these people in really fancy outfits, and they've got giant table settings and stuff, and I think, oh, just kill me now. This is deeply refreshing to hear, but I must say you're right that people do love it. I suppose it's interesting to know why you feel like that. I don't really have anything to say to those kind of people, really. And they don't really know who you are or anything like that. So I don't know. I don't usually find it very fun. I guess it's too bad, but it's true. (laughs) As I say, deeply refreshing. Let's talk about where you grew up. You grew up on a dairy farm in Canada. Mm -hmm. These days, that's quite an unusual place to come from, I suppose. What was it like? Well, sort of the very last of the family farm era, you know, North America. It was already sort of coming to a close by, you know, a few years after World War II. That area was settled right after the um, War of 1812. So huge numbers of people from uh, southern England mostly moved to that part of Canada, often as indentured servants. So the original member of my family didn't have any money, but they, you could get your passage and then you'd work for somebody for a couple of years, mm-hmm. um, clearing land or doing other kinds of jobs. And so they, and after they did a certain amount of that, then they, they bought this property like in 1815 or 1820 or something. And it was all laid out in 100 acre squares. You know, that's a relatively small. That's like 45 hectares. Mm. So this has been your family property since then. This this was the farm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there, over the time, there was like a, a little bit of you know half of another farm added to it, and you know some of the other farms were up to two hundred or maybe three hundred acres, and mm-hmm. so people would have dairy herds of 
35 or 40 cows up to maybe a hundred cows, which these days is just, you know, like below scale, the minimum sort of farm would be 400, maybe 350. And so there was many farms and there was a rural school with, um, in the area that had been built in the 1860s, maybe it's still there. But at the time I went, it, you know, it had um, big open room and five rows and each grade was a row. <laughs> which is good, you know, because if you were a little advanced, I, by the time I got to first grade, I could read pretty well. And I could basically follow along, you know, for our grade wasn't too interesting. Watch what were they doing in second grade, third grade, you know, <laughs> you could kind of advance along. And so that allowed me to skip a grade. I basically one year just moved over a row. <laughs> um, and then by fourth grade, then it, it closed that. And we went to a more modern school, uh, you know, with, with class, separate classrooms. And, and it was near a, a small city. And that was where the high school was. So the high school was quite good. You know, I took Latin and um, pretty advanced math, turns out, you know, by the five years of high school. So it was relatively good. Did it ever occur to you to stay on the farm and to be a farmer like your father and mother? Not really, no. Um my parents were pretty encouraging of most of the family getting on. I mean, we had a, I had four siblings and myself. And just, if anybody was going to stay on the farm, it probably wasn't going to be me. I was relatively better at school. My father had was one of a large family, and most of his older brothers and sisters all went to university. It was kind of you know assumed that most of the people were going to leave the farm. It sounds sort of idyllic being in the countryside, being surrounded by animals. Yeah, there's there's some pluses of it. I mean. Both your parents are around, so you're kind of raised by both parents. And that's nice. Um, I would I'd spend all my time with my dad, and you know, learn how to take things apart, drive tractors. By the time you were, you know, ten years old or something, and the kind of thing that would horrify, you know, modern parents these days who are won't let their children do anything until they're thirty years old. Does a working class background, a poorer background? make a difference to how you then practice the subject later on, do you think? Do you observe some separation between people who have come from different backgrounds? Um, not necessarily, but I would say one thing I have noticed, so the field of labor economics is a little different than almost all other fields in economics in that very seldom do labor economists talk about what's called welfare economics. And welfare economics is the thing that says this is what we should do. And um, I think if you're from a more disadvantaged background, you're a little bit less confident that we should just get every, you know, the kind of view of upper class people is these lower class people just need to sort of straighten up and fly right. <laughs> you know, just think of a conservative politician in Britain. That's kind of the way, that, you know, these people, they, they need to, you know, stop drinking and, um, you know, work harder and send their kids to the right schools and they'll be, everything will be fine. There's a certain element of that sort of thinking in, in economics and especially in this welfare economics part. And, and on the other hand, there's a group of people that don't do hardly any of that or none of that and just spend all the time saying, okay, so what are people doing? Why are they making this decision? How can we understand that? Is it something they perceive? Is it some constraint that we're not modeling? Is it like, why exactly are they making choices that you know seem potentially counterproductive or whatever? So that's a little bit, that's kind of the difference. That's fascinating. It's really observational and not bringing any kind of paternalistic preconceptions that one might Yeah, have. there's a huge, you know, amazing number of economists and, and I guess academics generally have extremely paternalistic ideas, mm. in my opinion. 
They just want to tell people what to do. <laughs> Maybe it's true of people in general. I don't know. <laughs> Actually, like, I think that's what's wrong with a lot of families. Like members of families want to tell each other what to do or mothers want to tell children or children want to tell older parents. or, or Yeah, yeah, I certainly think that's that could be seen as the view of my particular teenager. It's a hard thing to escape. Were your parents less affair about it? Did they try and tell you what to do or...? Oh, no, no, absolutely never. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, I remember my wife a long, long time ago when she first, you know, stayed with our family and she was kind of shocked that my parents don't intervene. It's fantastic. David Card started out as a physics major before switching to economics and eventually earning his PhD at Princeton University. As a professor at UC Berkeley, he sometimes advises students who are trying to decide whether they should go for an advanced degree in economics. It can be a very steep hill to climb. You know, getting an advanced degree in, in economics is incredibly competitive. It's probably one of the most competitive, maybe outside of computer science, the most competitive graduate program. So we get you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applications for our PhD program, and we only accept a tiny fraction kind of comparable to undergrads applying to get into uh, Harvard or something. It's kind of those kind of acceptance rates. What do you look for? What does that tiny fraction got that the others haven't? Well, that's pretty interesting, actually. They, they have to have a um, very strong math background. They have to have um, really strong letters from a couple of faculty who uh, have mentored students who've gone on to successful PhD programs and kind of know what, what they're looking for. Usually that would involve the student doing some kind of original research. Oftentimes they submit an original research project. Sometimes those are pretty impressive. Usually they're pretty impressive. And these days, actually, many of them are taking a couple of years in between undergrad and grad school to work in what's called a pre-doc program, where you work as a research assistant for um, some big uh, group of economists uh, or sometimes at the Federal Reserve and and do a lot of um, coding and um, building models and doing some quantitative analysis. And so they have this pretty big portfolio. They also can have no flaws in undergraduate degree. <laughs> so we get these very flawless students, mostly. I mean, Berkeley is not quite as competitive as Harvard and MIT, the top two. We get a few slightly more flawed. Usually the more flawed ones turn out to have some other benefit or you know advantage that helps them, a little more resilience or something. This is very interesting because I, I suppose that, I mean, th- they sound wonderful and, uh, you know, super people, really uh, equipped with all the faculties and driven and ready to go and knowing what they're wanting to do. I just wonder whether sometimes flaws can help a bit. I remember meeting a group of 16-year-old PhD students in China at a programme where they were advancing particularly young geniuses. So these are people who'd finished school at the age of 11 or whatever and got into university. I have met one of those in my time at Princeton, yeah. They were all, obviously so intelligent and successful already. But they were 16-year-olds and they were sitting around saying, once they'd hit research, it was all began to go rather slowly for them, that suddenly, you know, things had to necessarily slow down because you had to gather data. And that, they found that a bit frustrating. And I just wonder whether this cohort of immensely successful people, is there perhaps some danger that by getting people who have been so triumphant already, that they're going to just expect to continue to succeed in in some way and in some way skew things a bit because of that? Well, there's a lot of discussion about that. I don't think anybody really knows for sure how to choose the people who 
you know, the, the one thing it's very hard to, to discern is like long run creativity or something like that. And there's very different views about that. You know, my own view is, is that a lot of people could be more creative if they had the time and encouragement to kind of focus on a set of problems and learn how to solve those problems and then see how you know those solutions could go elsewhere. That's kind of the way most research projects go for someone like me. You know, I said, okay, well, we've, we've figured out this. Now I see there's this new data set. Maybe we could figure out how to do a similar thing there or something. So I think there's a, a lot of creativity could be learned, but other people uh, don't believe that. <laughs> they believe that there's uh, like, a, you know, put your hand on your forehead and they can feel the temperature. And if it's hot, it's hot and it stays hot. That's a more common view, I would say. There's another problem, which is, um, I would say the motivation or focus or whatever, that is very hard to discern among people who've, you know, gone in this very directed situation right because if the the goals are very clear there's a certain kind of mentality which is very good at that when you take away all the goals and say now do what you want that's a slightly different set of skills and we don't have very good way of learning from the set of people who've gone through and mastered all the goals who of those is going to be the ones that can work without the goals and of course one doesn't know but it is a very safe bet to go for these these young geniuses there's a new kind of idea in statistics. Well, not new, but it's it's widely used in the tech sector. If you're trying to, you're you're running an online auction of, um, you know, you're selling stuff like on eBay or something. And you don't quite know what would happen if you did something one way or another, and so you should be doing experimentation, ongoing experimentation. You should say once in a while you should just take a chance on something completely crazy and then see what happens and say, okay, well that worked. Let's move in that direction. We are not experimenting. And so I wish we were doing a little more experimentation to try and make sure that we are, you know, because I, I think there's a chance that we'll be kind of trapped without experimentation. We should say, okay, well, let's take three quarters of the class along the old round or two thirds, and then let's take a chance on some flyers for another five of, of the 20 people we're going to let in. How about affirmative action in this? I know the Supreme Court's thinking about this right now. That could be your 25% if that was a policy, but I guess it's not the policy. Directly or indirectly, there's already quite a bit of that going on. One direction that has probably been uh, helpful, historically, for some reasons that I, it's a little hard to figure out, there's not very many females in economics. One of the lowest traction female in all of the fields, uh, even worse than math and physics, well, even worse than physics, maybe about as bad as math these days. And there's a lot of concern about that. And it's, it's weird because at Berkeley, that's not the case. Our undergrad program is almost 50% female. So we're, we don't have that problem. But a lot of other places do for reasons that I don't understand. Right. So even at the undergraduate level, it's it's bad. Because once it gets oh, to yeah. the top level, it's, it is bad. Yeah. But what's been happening is most of the top programs are now admitting 50% females. Right. They're really committed to that. And they, they haven't really made announcements to that effect, but everybody <laughs> kind of knows that's what's going on. And uh, so that's probably going to change things. In, in ways that we can't completely foresee. Hmm. Underrepresented minorities, that's a very difficult issue. The fraction of underrepresented minorities in economics is just, well, say African-Americans is almost zero. It's basically one or two people in top programs per year coming out. It's really, really low. And that's a pipeline problem that goes way, way back. So, you know, there's not very many African-Americans at these elite schools where these perfectly jewel-like candidates are coming from, yeah. A. B. Not so many of them are in economics, they're in other fields. And C, a lot of them, if they are 
really talented and so on, they're not necessarily thinking about going to graduate school, maybe go to law school or some other business. So Berkeley, a lot of um, underrepresented minorities of African-American kids go into the business school program. So given the conversation we were having just now about the possible difference in economists who come from working class versus non-working class backgrounds, can you extend that to say that it would probably be good for economics if people were coming from all sorts of diverse backgrounds? Well, um, so in the United States, and probably elsewhere in Western Europe, people of African descent face a whole set of kind of discriminatory issues that are kind of hard to put your finger on that might influence and, and affect not just kids from lower SES families, you know, socioeconomic status families, but even upper SES families. But to the extent we, we get, you know, minority students in, uh, you know, applying and going to, on, a fairly large chunk of them are from pretty advantaged families. There are some exceptions, you know, very notable exceptions, actually, but most of them are, you know, the children of successful academics, just like the white kids. You know, everyone talks about bringing diversity in. And when we talk to laureates in other fields, you know, physics or chemistry or medicine, people like to talk about the importance of having diversity, diversity in the lab. It you know, brings different perspectives. Mm-hmm. But I just would have thought that with economics, because it is dealing so much with the interaction between individuals and interactions in society, it's probably more important to bring in diverse experiences if everyone comes with preconceptions, at least diverse preconceptions. Yeah, I think that's probably the case. But it takes it back to that um, pipeline system we have for choosing these exceptional candidates. If you're going to be someone who went to a really top school, had perfect grades all the way through, took all kinds of math, and uh, found a mentor and worked on an independent research project and worked as a research assistant for them for a couple of years before you complete your bachelor's degree. That's the person we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Probably has a double major or triple major, like our best ones are triple majors in uh, math, computer science, and economics. Okay, that's what we're looking for. Yeah. So the number of kids that are from any kind of disadvantaged background or on, you know, minority kids or whatever, that's just such a set of hurdles. David Card's research career has focused on finding natural experiments in the real world, helping us understand societal developments. One example is his paper on the Mariel Boatlift, a mass exodus where 125,000 Cubans emigrated to the US between April and October of 1980. Contrary to popular belief, his research showed that the boatlift had virtually no effect on wages or unemployment rates in the Miami labor market. The first step towards conducting a natural experiment is finding what David Card calls a strong source of credible identification. This means making sure there are reliable methods to prove a causal connection, for instance, between immigration and the labour market. We're trying to answer a causal question, and we're trying to find some way, some lever in the data or in the, the world that provides a fairly unambiguous answer to that if we do everything as credibly as we can. And so people are constantly looking for new ways, new techniques, new insights into sources of credible identification. And what we use this word identification to mean separate the causal effect from all those other correlation things that mess you up if you're, you know, you say, well, X and Y are just correlated. We can't really say that X causes Y. 
And so in a way, a perfect thing would be if there's some randomizing device being used somehow to allocate people to positions. And that's, for instance, that's what Joshua Angris is doing a lot of. He's looking at these uh, school choice mechanisms in the United States, which often are allocating children in, in school districts to schools. And there's almost inevitably excess demand for certain schools. And so almost inevitably, there's a randomizer, some lottery that says, okay, these kids get in, these ones have to go someplace else. And so there you, there's your source of identification. In the United States, there's different healthcare systems and veterans, people who serve in the military, have an unusual situation. They can go to ordinary healthcare system or they can go to the system that's run by the Veterans Administration. It's a separate kind of healthcare system. And it's more like almost like a system that exists in other countries like Britain or something. It's like the national health. Okay, we would like to know, is, is going to the VA system any good or not? The problem is, you know, who, who's making that choice? Well, one way you could do it is say, well, turns out if you have a heart attack, ambulance picks you up. Ambulance often basically just takes you to a hospital that they always take everybody to. Now, we don't quite know exactly why they do that, but that's what they do. So there's a source of identification. Which ambulance picked you up? And how often do they take other patients to one system versus the other? Okay, so that's called an ambulance design. <laughs> Another one is um, we're trying to figure out whether sentencing of judges, you know, you sent, you're sentenced to a longer sentence, do you recidivate and crime more? And so one way to deal with that is to say, well, okay, some judges are harsh, some are less. There's some kind of randomizing device that's sending you in front of that judge versus that judge. You get the harsh judge, you're in for 10 years, you get the easy judge, you're in for three. Okay, follow those. That's called a judge's design. <laughs> now you're getting the idea. Yep. Okay. So often these experiments lead you to conclusions which have big public policy implications. And people like to take your work and talk about it in those contexts. So whether it's, you know, that the minimum wage works or immigration isn't damaging to the labour market or rent control is good or whatever it is, they like to say those things based on your results. But it seems to me that you tend not to say them yourself. You present the data, but you step short of going out and then advocating for the change that the data suggests should happen. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so the question is why? Well, actually, uh, you know, a particular set of findings don't ever really indicate one policy versus another. So what's really going on is, um, I like to give the example from earlier work that I did with Alan Kruger before we did the work on a minimum wage, we were looking at the effect of smaller classes on student outcomes later in life. And we decided, well, let's focus on African-Americans in the South United States in the 1920s and 30s. They went to these segregated school systems. Black families didn't have anything to do with how much money the school system had. It was basically the whites in some states gave more money to the blacks and in some states less. And so there was enormous variation there. And we showed that it looked like uh, there was, you know, larger class size hurt you, didn't earn as well, or smaller class size. On average, those kids went to school longer, and for every year they were in school, they earned a bit more. Mm -hmm. So that, that result goes out there. Now, at the same time, this is in the 1990s, there's a big debate. It was a fairly conservative time. And so the question is, like, should we be spending more money on schools or not? And there's one school of thought that says, you know, every single dollar you spend in schools is wasted. And there's another school that says, well, it, it maybe isn't wasted, but it has some effect. And what advocates for the don't increase spending do is they say, okay, when we do studies, we show that there's no effect of smaller classes on student outcomes. Therefore, we shouldn't spend any money. 
And, you know, so our study comes out and says, well, you know, it, in fact, that's not true. You look and you see these smaller classes and bigger classes really have systematic effects on earnings later in life. But that doesn't necessarily mean that parents should increase spending. It just means that this argument that people were making wasn't quite correct. And a lot of times these arguments that are put out in the political sphere are really extreme arguments like school spending has no effect on anything Hmm. or, you know, raising the minimum wage always causes employment to fall. When it's been known since the 1930s that if employers set wages, that isn't necessarily true. People want to have these, especially advocates, want to have, uh, and they get all the evidence lined up on their side, and then they present it in front of, you know, the audience as if it's just unambiguously the case, right? That's just the way public policy advocacy works. It's all deeply deceptive and mm. almost, almost always very dishonest. It's like a litigation proceeding. You've got the one side presenting their side of the story, and every single piece of evidence they present is their side of the story. I find that very objectionable. I, it, that's the way public policy is done in the United States. Every single policy, there's an advocate for and an advocate against. And I, I find that very disheartening. Deeply frustrating, just people taking extreme positions. But then that leaves you as a gatherer of evidence, a gatherer of information. And you have to be content to stop there and just hope that people will somehow see the sense. Well, to tell you the truth, I sort of give up on that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, okay, so work on immigration. I've been working on immigration for many, many years. Attitudes toward immigration have, in in the last 30 years, have really shifted. For quite a long time in the United States, for instance, in the 1990s, there was kind of a pro-immigrant attitude. And there was a lot of illegal immigration coming into the United States. People were saying, okay, well, this... You know, this isn't what we totally plan, but they're getting jobs, they're contributing to the economy. We kind of had, had a don't ask, don't tell. That's the way I call that policy. Especially in places like California with the big agricultural sector, a lot of construction and so on. It was very widespread. And then for a variety of reasons, that's shifted. You know, one of the major ones was 9-11. Hmm. So after 9-11, you know, the people got really worried about foreigners and stuff. And so I always say that the major uh, victims of 9-11 were Mexican immigrants. Not that Mexican immigrants had anything to do with 9-11, but that's who really suffered. Yeah. yeah, so public policy goes up and down on the basis of, you know, Donald Trump or something. What are you supposed to do about that? Nothing I can do about that. No, it, it makes sense. I understand the position. Absolutely. It's a little bit unusual to be in possession of the facts or certain facts in, in some cases and then not just feel driven to use them to bang on somebody's door. Well, I mean, it, I think you're kind of overstating the reception of this, you know, evidence. So you write a study, you know, I wrote the paper on the Marielle boat lift in 1989 or 90 or whatever. It comes out in a very modest journal. I never presented the paper anywhere. People say, oh, that's kind of interesting, blah, blah, blah. Then for reasons that I don't fully understand, people start to pay attention to it, uh, whatever. But And then other people say, well, actually, that's, that's all wrong. It's completely incorrect, you know. And so there, there is never, in social science, there is never a piece of evidence that is completely decisive. Sure, but uh, but it's it's slightly humble of you to sort of say it's not that big a deal because people do, do react to your work. You evoke a strong reaction in that people say, as you say, oh, it's not true. But the strength of the reaction indicates how powerful the information is, really. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Kruger and I did all this work on minimum wages. We wrote a book in 1995. Princeton Press publishes the book. They try and do a you know big campaign and stuff, and 
they print a fairly large number of copies, which they never sold. <laughs> <laughs> it never got reviewed in the New York Times or never got reviewed in the you know literary supplement or anything like that. So it didn't really have much impact. Now, after over 10 years, it started to have more of an impact, I guess. And, you know, they did an anniversary study and stuff. But was that really because of our work or was it because people's perceptions on the basis of other things have changed and now we're providing the evidence that they want? That's the question you've got to ask yourself. Yes, it's complex. Yeah. Right. So your evidence might be of particular you know, type and, and then the advocates on one side or the other, you know, start to get interested and grab it and use it. But, you know, is that really a good thing? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> Hard to predict how things will be used, for sure. I wanted to ask you about what you do when you're not doing natural experiments, when you're not being an economist. What's your pastime? Well, I mean, we have a small property in Sonoma and we go there you know, every week and, you know, we've got a big garden and try and take care of things. I've got a woodworking shop, which... You know, last few years has been very tough, to tell you the truth. I was the chairman of my department. I was the president of the American Economic Association, and I was working a day a week for a tech company. So I, I had basically no time. Then I got the Nobel Prize thing, and I was like, oh, my God. So I basically haven't had any free time for a few years. <laughs> Gosh, that's hard. I mean, I'm sure all stimulating and productive, but it's hard not to have any time to yourself. Well, there wasn't much to do, right? Because it was COVID yeah. for the last two years. You can't really go in. I mean, normally, we, my wife and I would try and go on vacation for three weeks or four weeks in, in Europe every spring. But the last couple of years, we haven't been able to do that. But a woodworking shop is somewhere you can retreat and do carpentry. True, but you need time. Uh, you know, you don't want to go into a woodworking shop and be in a hurry. That's a, so, you know, I've made a few projects, you know, small things, frames and toys and stuff, but not nothing major. What would be a major thing you'd make in the woodworking shop if you had time? Or a table or a bureau or um, <laughs> we've got a fairly big yard and renovated that yard in the last couple of years. And so I, I need to make some outdoor furniture for it, which is kind of time consuming. You have to use slightly different techniques so that, you know, some of the techniques you'd use for indoor furniture won't work for outdoor because it's exposed to the elements and gets mm -hmm. wet and then dry. So you have to really think it through and follow different plans. I'm not a woodworker myself, but I read an amazing set of books by a woodworker called James Krenov, a furniture maker, cabinet makers. From Northern California. Yeah, exactly. Everybody knows about him. Yeah. yeah, that's why I was thinking of him in connection with you. Yeah, this area, like where our house is in Sonoma, there's tons of woodworkers who, um, you know, it's a little bit, uh, it's a very strange field for people. It's very lonely work. It's you and the wood. <laughs> it's not a team project. That's one of the things that absolutely intrigued me about Krenov's books because he describes that relationship with the wood and standing and just being with the wood until the wood tells him what to make out of it and all that sort right. of thing. Mm -hmm. Amazing. There, there's a there's a house, uh, there's another famous worker, Maloof, James Maloof, and you can go and see his house. And he it was just a master of taking a look at something and saying, okay, this is going to go this way and I'm going to make a chair that you know has that bit of a curve in it that, that works perfectly. And his whole house is like that. The most amazing thing, yeah. So that it's a special skill, yeah. So I, I admire that kind of thing. I, I don't have that level of skill. I don't know. Maybe if I once I retire, maybe I could work a little bit. I'll <laughs> never be. I'll never be a James Krenov. You could be a Krenov student. There's lots of Krenov students. Right. Yes. But on the other hand, anybody can go and stand with a bit of wood and just uh, just take time off being chairman of a department. Or... <laughs> <laughs> 
as the conversation draws to a close, they revisit the topic of the Nobel banquet, and David Card admits that he might be willing to reconsider. But he has some very specific conditions. The only reason I would have gone to the ceremony is if somebody, like, you know, I would have loved to have met Jose Saramago. That's the only kind of thing that I would have liked to... If I, if I could yeah, have a conversation with Jose Saramago, then I would have gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, if things go as they talk about them going, so that they maybe in December they will invite your cohort and the cohort from the year before and this year, then you've also got this year's laureates to look at in October and decide whether there's some, right. someone in Some of whose books I've read all yeah. my life, yeah. Thank you very much indeed, David. Great to chat with you, Adam, yeah. You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations. If you'd like to learn more about David Card, you can go to nobelprize.org, where you'll find a wealth of information about the prizes and the people behind the discoveries. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of FILT and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Carden Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, Magnus Yulier, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. If you're looking for more listening, check out our earlier conversation with Richard Thaler, another behavioural economist who won't tell us what to do, but who might just give us a nudge in the right direction. You can find previous seasons and conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.